Okay, so we have um, two directors in the 21st Century Ocean Institute. Um, I'm Gideon Henderson. I work at the Earth Science Department. I'm a chemist, and David is a physicist working at the Physics Department. In addition to bringing those slightly different research skills to the Institute, I also bring the problems, and David pretty much brings the solutions. So I'm going to give you the problem bit, and then we move on to David telling you how to solve them. And basically, this is the problem problem you're all familiar with. CO2 is going up in the atmosphere because of the burning of fossil fuels, driving global warming and driving acidification of the ocean. And what we want to do in the Ocean Institute is understand the role of the ocean in setting the shape of this graph through the 21st century ocean. Now, why should we think about the ocean? Well, the primary reason is that the oceans contain about 60 times more carbon than the atmosphere does. And naturally, the oceans actually set the atmospheric value for CO2. Now, we are pushing around the atmosphere now so hard that the oceans can't keep up. But on timescales of more than a century or two, the oceans would still dominate the atmosphere, and they're playing an important impact now and through the 21st century. So one of the other problems that we have in trying to understand the ocean's role in CO2 change is that the oceans, and indeed the whole carbon cycle, is phenomenally complicated. We have to understand the packaging of carbon into several, into many chemical forms and the interaction of those chemical forms between res different reservoirs. And then we have to put that into a biological and a three-dimensional physical understanding in the oceans. And those are the sorts of problems that we're going to tackle in our new institute. One of the things we do know, however, about carbon in the oceans is that carbon is being absorbed by seawater. And this graph shows that to you quite clearly. The bright colors on here are showing you where anthropogenic CO2 has gone in the ocean since it was started to be released. And you can see um, clearly that there's about, um, well, actually there's about a third of the carbon we've released has gone into the ocean. But it hasn't just gone in as a simple sheet. You can see there's significant structure to the way that carbon goes in. If we want to understand what's going to continue to happen to carbon uptake, we need to understand how ocean circulation has created this sort of feature and how it will continue to control the uptake of carbon as we go forward through the 21st century. Now, of course, the carbon that goes into the ocean also is, is causing the ocean to become more acid. So the same sort of three-dimensional modeling that will enable us to understand carbon uptake will teach us about ocean acidification, where we'll get this acid and how much it'll get acid by. Another noticeable feature on this sort of graph is that the deep ocean doesn't have any anthropogenic carbon, and that's because it's never seen a polluted atmosphere. If you showed it a polluted atmosphere, it would suck carbon up pretty quickly. And this makes it obviously a pretty good target, a tempting target, for sequestering of carbon dioxide um, and getting it out of the atmosphere. So another question that we'll address is where's the best place to do such carbon sequestration and how much can you put down there without the risk of it coming back out again? Now the most obvious way of putting carbon into the deep ocean is just to pump it down there. But a final set of problems that we'll look at in our institute is that of uh, geoengineering a solution trying to manipulate the natural system so that the oceans take up some carbon for us and help to solve our climate warming problems. Now, there are several different mechanisms to do that, and our institute will look at all of those. But uh, one of them that I'll pick on, and perhaps the most um, commonly heard of, is that of iron fertilization. This figure on the, on the left here shows you the pattern of nitrate in the world's ocean. This is normally the limiting nutrient in the ocean. And you can see it's used up in most bits of the ocean. Life chomps all the food and then stops. But there are some areas uh, where the nitrate isn't used up, and that's because of lack of iron in the ocean. Now, this um, figure on the right here shows that if you go to one of those regions in your research vessel and you dump iron off the back of it, 
the response that you get is this huge bloom of productivity shown here in this satellite image. And that productivity is consuming carbon, potentially taking it out of the atmosphere and removing it to the deep ocean. Now, whether this sort of system could work on a large scale, whether you could actually remove carbon from the atmosphere into the ocean by sailing ships and dumping iron filings off the back of them isn't well known. And the implications of that for biology and for chemistry of the oceans are also not well known. And those are another set of problems we'll address in our institute. So the problems that we're facing up to in our institute are how much carbon will the oceans take up this century? How much carbon could we try and store in the deep ocean? And where should we put it? What will happen to ocean pH? And can we actually geoengineer a solution to global warming in the 21st century? So those are the problems that David's now going to tell you the answers to. <laughs> okay, so thank you very much, Gideon. So I'm going to tell you about the tools we use to model, um, we're going to use to model the 21st century ocean carbon cycle. Um, and the key is here really to model the ocean circulation, um, which is really a fundamental factor, um, and also of course the ocean carbon cycle itself. So the main tool we're going to use is a global ocean circulation model. Um, my group is involved in the development of such models, but for this project we propose to take a model from MIT the so-called MIT General Circulation Model. And what you're looking at at the moment is a movie um, of the simulated currents um, in one run simulated by this global model. And so you can see, for example, um, strong currents. So bright colors indicate um, where the current speeds are fastest. And you can see various currents concentrated on the western sides of the basins. And these represent the dominant ocean currents, for example, the Gulf Stream and the Kurashio. You can also see various ocean eddies um, captured by this model. Now, for this project, it's unlikely we'll be able to run at these sort of resolutions um, over the 100-year timescale, but this is this, the type of model we intend, to, we intend to use, albeit run at slightly coarser resolution. Um, in addition, we propose to take quite an innovative model of the ocean biogeochemistry um, developed by one of our collaborators, Mick Follows at MIT, um, so this was published in Science last year, um, and it's a so-called emergent ecosystem model. And the idea is that you seed the ocean um, with um, some stochastically generated um, phytoplankton types and basically let them fight it out. And you find that um, different functional types then end up dominating in different parts of the, the ocean. And obviously we don't have time to go into details here, um, but you can see the total phytoplankton biomass, and it bears a lot of resemblance to the um, nutrient um, pictures that Gideon was showing a few slides back. So the highest biological activity um, at higher latitudes where you have availability of nutrients, which is in turn related to regions where you have upwelling, bringing nutrients to the surface from the deep ocean. And you get different um, functional types in the different oceans. And if you compare um, the, the types produced by the model, um, to what's observed in the, in the ocean, then there is some, some reasonable similarity um, between the two. Now, in particular, we don't want to just um, run these models in a, a random forward mode, but we want to use a particular technique, in fact, a couple of techniques, um, so so-called adjoint models um, and also a, something known as a transit matrix method. And I thought I would just illustrate one of those here. So the idea with an adjoint model um, is that you look at the sensitivity of a single output to all inputs in the past. And this is particularly well suited to the sort of questions that we're interested in addressing as part of this school. 
Um, so for example, if you were to sequester um, carbon in the ocean, the question you're really interested in answering is if you were to put carbon into different parts of the ocean, so your various inputs, how would each of those inputs affect your output, which is atmospheric CO2 levels? Um, so in a traditional model, you change your inputs. Your model then tells you how a single output, sorry, all outputs in the future change. In an adjoint model, you have one output, and you ask how that single output is sensitive to all changes in inputs in the, in the past. So here's an example we've been working on to give you some idea of what you can do. So this is the so-called overturning circulation or conveyor belt in the Atlantic. So warm water is moving northwards in the surface layers, returning southwards at depth. And the question we asked is, um, how is this circulation, the strength of this conveyor belt at 27 north, sensitive to heating and cooling over the Atlantic um, of, in various time windows um, over the past? And this shows you the sensitivity then of that overturning to sea surface temperature forcing um, in the eastern part of the northern Atlantic and in the western <coughs> part. Um, so you can see the red lines here showing you the sensitivity to temperature anomalies in the east and the blue lines to the west. And so, for example, you can see that um, the sensitivities are out of phase with each other. And that teaches us interesting, um, gives us some interesting information then about the system. So the institute itself, so you've already... Um, seen the two co-directors, Gideon and myself. Um, we also have a number of co-investigators, Heather Bauman, Helen Johnson and Ross Rickaby, who <coughs> are all based in Earth Sciences. We will be employing two James Martin Fellows. We've just shortlisted for those fellowships and we'll be appointing shortly. Um, we also hope to attract some James Martin visiting fellows, such as Mick Follows, who's been developing um, the emergent ecosystem model. Um, and we've already, in fact, a, a requires some leverage funding, which we hope can enable us to appoint some additional um, fellows to enhance the support coming directly from the school. So to conclude, I will leave the problems um, up on my screen, and thank you for your attention. <laughs>